The Hamlet Podcast, Episode 2. Hello and welcome to this new exploration of Shakespeare's King Lear, with me your host, Connor Hanretty. The first scene of any Shakespeare play is our introduction to the world and concerns of the story. Sometimes the main characters don't even appear until well into the script. Think of Hamlet, Romeo, Othello and many others. But not so this play. Lear's opening scene is almost a play in itself, an extraordinary introduction. We've only just got our heads around Kent and Gloucester, and the rather dismissive way parents seem to treat their children in this world, legitimate or otherwise. And now we hear a senate, the kind of trumpet fanfare that was only used for the most high-ranking of personages, emperors or kings. By the looks of things, Shakespeare's audiences would have been familiar with the different kinds of fanfares and musical proclamations that he uses. Within Hamlet and Macbeth, we've encountered various tuckets and senates and oboes, all judiciously used for the meanings that they have inherent to them. Here, the senate, that highest ranking of fanfares, introduces what will be King Lear's only entrance as King of Britain. Stage directions about senates have a controversial history, and I'll explain more in the show notes because I know you'll be interested. But both the quarto and folio texts of this play insist that it is a senate that sounds to announce King Lear's entrance. And as it plays, it is King Lear, Cornwall and Albany who enter, along with Lear's three daughters, Goneril, Regan and Cordelia. The quarto also has a stage direction saying, Enter one bearing a coronet. This will be important during the scene to come, so remember it, but the folio doesn't have this instruction. We will encounter it again later, and for now you can imagine it either borne in on a cushion, or, if you want to approach it like a director, you can start thinking about who should be wearing it. When everyone has entered, productions often tend to have Lear sit on a throne. Some productions even wheel him in sitting on one. It is an important entrance, and since it's all downhill from here, this is an opportunity to show King Lear at the height of his power. And of course it's Lear that now speaks. It's his world, and everyone else just lives in it. The first thing he does is give instructions. Attend the lords of France and Burgundy, Gloucester. He tells Gloucester to go and look after these noblemen from Burgundy and France. Nowadays, Burgundy is part of the country we know as France, but it was a kingdom in its own right centuries before Shakespeare was writing. In the prehistory of the play, France and Burgundy would hardly have existed. According to the Chronicles, Lear's story would have been about 800 BC, at least a century before even the Gauls existed as we think of them in France. So, Shakespeare's idea of France, and indeed of Burgundy, is anachronistic at best. Gloucester, dutiful to his king, says, I shall, my liege. And he exits to look after France and Burgundy. Now, dear listener, take a look at your edition of the play right here. Gloucester definitely exits, but a great many editors like to have Edmund exit here as well. He does not speak again in Act 1, Scene 1, granted, but it seems a crazy idea to have him depart the stage now and miss everything that's going to follow. Neither the quarto nor the folio tells Edmund to leave, and for my money, it is far more useful to have him stay and watch. 
maybe even hug the wall and avoid being noticed while he observes. Now that I've questioned editorial tradition and Shakespeare's interest in the ancient history of France, it's time for Lear's first speech proper. Meantime, we shall express our darker purpose. Give me the map there. Know that we have divided into three our kingdom, and tis our fast intent to shake all cares and business from our age, conferring them on younger strengths, while we, unburdened, crawl toward death. Our son of Cornwall, and you, our no less loving son of Albany, we have this hour a constant will to publish our daughter's several dowers, that future strife may be prevented now. The princes, France and Burgundy, great rivals in our youngest daughter's love, long in our court have made their amorous sojourn, and here are to be answered. Tell me, my daughters, since now we will divest us both of rule, interest of territory, cares of state, which of you, shall we say, doth love us most? that we our largest bounty may extend where nature doth with merit challenge. Goneril, our eldest-born, speak first. This is a shock. Kent and Gloucester did hint that they anticipated Lear's division of the kingdom. This is perhaps the favouring between Albany and Cornwall. They aren't just nobles in King Lear's court, we should remember, they are the husbands of his two older daughters. Albany is married to Goneril, and Cornwall is married to Regan. But the surprise is that he's going to divide this kingdom into three parts, between the two married daughters and the unmarried youngest. Each of his daughters will have a share. Meantime, he says, using the royal plural, we shall express our darker purpose. This immediately puts us in the audience at odds with what he's saying. Lear is suggesting that he's got a darker, perhaps secret or unpublished reason for this gathering. In the audience, we're immediately on the back foot. What's the main purpose, then? Well, it must be to do with France and Burgundy, since he started by sending Gloucester out to deal with them. And now this darker purpose will be revealed while that's being arranged. Lear asks for a map. Unlike that coronet mentioned earlier, there's no particular stage direction for this to be brought on. But a map is needed. Some productions have done dramatic things incorporating the map even into the set design, while others are more practical. A fairly reasonable thought might be to have Kent enter carrying a map. Perhaps this is what he and Gloucester are talking about as they discuss the division of the kingdom at the very beginning of the play. Now Kent can be the one that gives the map to Lear and the king now announces what he's planning. No, he says, that we have divided in three our kingdom, and tis our fast intent to shake all cares and business from our age, conferring them on younger strengths, while we, unburdened, crawl toward death. So, Lear is retiring, and has decided to divide the kingdom in three. He is an old man, We'll learn eventually that the character is 80, and so he's decided to shake off all cares and business, the running of the kingdom. Instead, these responsibilities can be conferred, or confirmed, on younger strengths. Lear, now unburdened with these cares, will crawl toward death. There can be a temptation for productions to allow Lear to seem quite doddery here, 
But this is a mistake. He's got a big journey ahead of him, and there's plenty of life in the old dog. He's retiring so that he can enjoy the rest of his life, not because he's got nothing left. There's room even for a smirk in that idea of crawling towards death. Now, it's worth imagining the surprise of Shakespeare starting a play like this. King Lear was written in 1606, the year after the gunpowder plot threatened to blow up Parliament and wipe out most of the royal family. Shakespeare and his company were now the king's men and provided regular entertainments for his court, as well as their own work in the commercial theatres they operated. This was a time of unification. James VI of Scotland was now also James I of England, and the great project of his reign was the unification of the two, as well as Wales and, of course, Ireland, as Great Britain. 1606 was the year the world first saw the Union Jack, the flag that united the kingdom under this banner. And here, now, with very fast intent, Shakespeare is starting a play with an English king choosing to step down and divide the kingdom. It must have been a startling moment for an audience. We're going to be talking about this historical context at key moments through the play, so do bear it in mind. For now, Lear continues his explanation, speaking first to his daughter's husbands. Whatever Kent may have thought about him favouring Albany, it's Cornwall that gets the first mention, even though he immediately insists that he likes Albany just as much. Our son of Cornwall, and you are no less loving son of Albany, we have this hour a constant will to publish our daughter's several dowers, that future strife may be prevented now. There's no small irony in this. Lear is making public his daughter's inheritance, as he puts it, to prevent future strife. As the play is going to show, it does the exact opposite. Far from preventing any strife, this is going to cause a lot. And he barrels onward, explaining that France and Burgundy have been staying at court for a long time as suitors to Cordelia, youngest of his three daughters. But it's high time that their amorous sojourn, as he puts it, be concluded or at least resolved with a decision. The princes, France and Burgundy, great rivals in our youngest daughter's love, long in our court have made their amorous sojourn, and here are to be answered. It seems that the primary impulse behind this court gathering is to pick a husband for Cordelia, and with that decision the announcement of an attractive dowry for her. All the more attractive now that it seems she's going to be getting a third of the kingdom. So this scene is almost like a marriage. It should be a happy occasion with a big announcement and good news for everybody. If the assumption and the word at court was that the kingdom was to be divided into two rather than three, Regan and Goneril will surely have a reaction to this. Having one's share reduced from a half to a third is presumably rather galling. And the surprise has been delivered in public, in full view of the assembled court. And if that wasn't bad enough, there's more. Lear moves straight into a contest. Since he's going to be giving up all the responsibilities of kingship, he wants some assurance that his heirs deserve this great gift he wants to give them. Tell me, my daughters, since now we will divest us both of rule, interest of territory, cares of state, which of you shall we say doth love us most? He wants his daughters to make a very public announcement of how much they love him. 
and whoever loves him the most will win the most. He's saying that natural affection and deserving are the criteria here, nature and merit. That we our largest bounty may extend where nature doth with merit challenge. It does cross my mind, and I have to wonder, if Lear had had a son, would he inherit everything? Or indeed, would he have divided his kingdom among three sons in this manner? The story is a good one, and of course tales of inheritance continue to fascinate us. Even if you haven't seen the TV show Succession, you've probably heard the King Lear comparisons, and it was an extraordinary piece of drama. But even it has nothing on Lear, which is the archetype. Lear will divide the kingdom between his daughters and their husbands, depending on who makes the most convincing argument. So Lear goes in order. He says, Goneril, our eldest-born, speak first. Poor Goneril, and this is the only time I'll call her that, might have been wondering if she shouldn't have inherited the whole kingdom. If her father had died instead of retiring, maybe she would have just have become queen. In Shakespeare's England, remember, there had been two remarkable queens before the accession of James to the throne. Two sisters, indeed, who followed a very famous king. Could this have been on the minds of an audience watching this play? We can't really know. But Goneril now has to think on her feet, scrambling to earn her third of the kingdom with a speech of flattery to her father. But here seems like a natural break, so we'll save her oily speech for the next episode. I hope that you're already enthused and excited for this new journey we've begun. Some of you have been very kind and bought me a coffee recently, and I want to say a very big thank you for that. It's never expected and always very much appreciated. I'm delighted to have your company, and I'll speak to you next time.